You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, thanks for braving the weather and for being here this morning. I hope you're doing well. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 5. You're going to need like a thumb or something where you can get to both of those two places. 1 Peter 3 and uh, Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me just say a couple of quick things. One, I want to say thanks for, uh, to Valentine for preaching last week. If you were here last week, you know he did a great job. And um, I felt really encouraged, um, humbled, all of those sort of things listening last week. And so um, God was really kind to us in using Valentine. And secondly, um, while you're turning there, go ahead and get those two places, First Peter 3 and uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, there and marked, but as you're turning there, secondly, I want to clarify one thing. Uh, You know, if you've been here for any time, you know that God has really grown our church family. We started five years ago in a living room with like 20 adults, and in September, we averaged right under um, 800 people, and so God has just been really kind to us in bringing people and, you know, and that, that sort of a thing. And so, but one of the things that has done just with increased growth has come increased complexity, which has meant we have needed to add staffing uh, to our church family um, to help serve our church family well. And we've tried to do that in an intentionally lean way, but as um, needs have grown, as complexity have grown, we have felt that. And so we have talked about this a little bit over the last several months that that back in um, September, uh, we brought on Jeff Garner. He is um, doing our students right now. And if if you are a parent and you have students or you are a student, 6th through 12th grade, you need to make sure you meet Jeff. He is doing a really, really wonderful job. And so uh, Jeff, uh, we hired back in September. Uh, we also brought on Jennifer Curran in September, uh, three-quarter time. She is helping Jeff in our student ministry. She's also kind of the point person in giving some leadership to our women's development in our church family. Um, uh, and she also does event coordination. Like when we did the marriage conference a few months ago, she was the person that's, that's pushing that ball. And so she's doing a great job. I really think God's going to use her in some really wonderful ways in our church family. And in October, we uh, brought on Kevin Hill. And Kevin is giving leadership to two big areas in our church family. Um, one is uh, kind of our pastoral care. So that covers all things pastoral care and counseling, that whole side of things. He's really pushing that ball and our missional engagement, both locally and foreign. Um, he is helping in all of that. So he's giving leadership to that and doing a great job. Um, I think he is going to be another one just produces such great fruit over the long haul of our church family's life. And so we're really grateful for that. And back in August, God, or really this was kind of over the summer, God also brought to us another church planting resident. We want to plant a lot of churches. We want to be a church that reproduces ourselves, who plants other churches. And so Brad Marvin has come on as a church planting resident, and we hope to be able to plant him in a, probably about a year and a half from now. And so all of those things are happening. That's added on to the staff that we already have. Like Travis Wyckoff has been with us for a good while, producing incredibly great fruit. Um, He leads our home groups, among a lot of other things in our church family. Valentine does a lot of things for our church family. He came on as a church planning resident, is now on full-time with us. Uh, Kevin leads us in song. Jimmy Needham also um, helps periodically, leading us in worship. Jessica Wiseman over in our uh, children's area. Let me just say this about our staff. I think we have an incredibly great staff. And God is really, yeah, for sure. God has been so kind to us in these ways. There is a genuine love there. There's a genuine unity there that I am so appreciative of. So I just want to invite you, more than anything in saying all that, I want to invite you to be praying for them that God would bless them, that God would produce fruit for them, God would keep their hearts good in front of him. So please pray for them. So we've had a lot of that happening over the last several months just in trying to address how God is growing us as a church family. Okay, so uh, with that said, we are in part four of a set of sermons called Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. And uh, here's kind of where we're going in this set of sermons. Culture, a church's culture is this. It's what most people in a church family do most of the time. This is This is our culture. This is Stonegate's vibe. It's our ethos, what most people do most of the time. And what we're trying to do in this set of sermons is just take a step back and acknowledge this, that if a church isn't careful, a church's culture can unsay what their doctrine says, that it's very possible for just the normal way we operate, our lives, the the people that make up our church family, the way we normally operate, it's very possible that our lives can unsay our doctrine. That That is something a church can do. If we're not careful, we will hold on to gospel doctrine all the while not having gospel culture, a culture that reflects and adorns the doctrine that we hold so dear. That is very, very possible for a church family to do. 
And Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 2. We spent our first week there in Galatians 2 where he confronts Peter. And, and here's what he's confronting in Peter. This is, what, this is what Paul knows. This is why it's a big deal to Paul. This is why Paul doesn't just scrape a bad culture under the rug and just go on down the way. Paul knows that right doctrine plus wrong culture equals doctrinal denial. That even when you have the right doctrine, if your culture isn't right, you can unsay what you're saying with your doctrine to such a degree that, that God would consider it doctrinal denial. That that is possible to do. So we're getting a chance today to take a step back and just ask the question, does our culture match our doctrine? So what is gospel doctrine? In summary, it's this, that we have fired the first shot of God, that we have thrown the first punch at God, that we have sinned against a good and holy and righteous God. And rather than consuming us in wrath, God has met us with mercy in his son. So that all of us who come with the empty hands of faith to God are reconciled to God. We're rescued. We're saved from God's wrath. This is gospel doctrine. I, I love how my friend Ray Ortland summarizes it. He says, gospel doctrine is this. We're all idiots. We all have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. That is gospel doctrine. Right, And here's the point of this, this whole set of sermons, is to say that gospel doctrine should produce a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace should produce a culture of grace. Gospel doctrine is this, unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. That is your story if you're in Christ. Unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. And a gospel culture is this. That should produce a gospel culture that goes like this. It should produce a culture where unspeakably great things are happening to unspeakably bad people. Where really wonderful things are happening to people who are not worthy of the wonderful things that are happening to them. It should produce a culture where we're operating like that. See, gospel doctrine, the doctrine of grace and forgiveness and mercy should be producing a culture in our church family of grace and forgiveness and mercy. Th this is the point. This is, this is what we're trying to address. Maybe you can think of it this way. The test of a gospel-centered church is both its doctrine on paper and its culture in practice. It's both of those two things. See, we're not gospel-centered if we just have one. We're gospel-centered if we have both. And to get a gospel culture, there's no doctrinal shortcuts. It lands on and is built on firm gospel doctrine. But here's the other thing, that if we want our doctrine to be beautiful, we cannot disregard the culture. Our culture is meant to adorn the doctrine that we hold so dear and love so much. So we're getting a chance to think about this. Our culture is what we do most of the time. And is that reflecting our doctrine that we hold so dear? So here's what we're going to consider today. We're going to consider the gospel doctrine of reconciliation and the culture it should produce. So we're going to start with the gospel doctrine, reconciliation. This is going to be 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18 going to say right here in one verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, says this. Probably one of the, the clearest summaries of the good news of Jesus in the entire Bible. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Okay, so let's start with the little phrase there, right in kind of the, the ending part of the verse, that he might bring us to God. I just want you to look at that. You might underline that phrase in, in 1 Peter 3.18. I, I want you to stare at that for a minute. That he might bring us to God. In that single little statement right there, Peter is showing us both our greatest problem and our greatest need. He's showing us both of those two things in that little phrase that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. Our greatest problem and our greatest need. A, a few months ago, we started to set a, or a sermon by me just asking you this question. Imagine a person slides a piece of paper in front of you, and on the top of that paper is the question, what is the world's greatest problem? Do you remember that when we, we just considered that question? What, what is the world's greatest problem? Now, there's a lot of problems in the world, isn't there? There is a lot of problems. So you might put on there poverty, the problem. You might put on there a lack of education. You might put on there disease and sickness. 
You, you might put on there the moral disintegration that's happened. I mean, you could put on there all of those things, and those are problems. When they hit your life and run into your life, those things really do hurt. But according to the Bible, those are not our greatest problems. They are symptoms of the greatest problem. According to the Bible, our greatest problem is spiritual alienation. Your greatest problem, our greatest problem, the world's greatest problem is spiritual alienation. It's Isaiah 59, that our sin has separated us from God. This is, this is the product of our sin. We are now separated from God. Or, in, you know, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 uses the most stark language for it. In Romans 5.10, Paul says it this way. Because of God's righteousness and our sin colliding together, here's what it produces. According to Romans 5.10, we are now enemies of God. Do you know that? That when a human being is born, they are born as an enemy of God? Now that sort of hostility, that lack of peace in the relationship between us and God, that rupture, that spiritual alienation, it goes both ways. So, so I, I want you to see both of these two components. When it says that we're enemies of God, it's saying that that hostility is a two-way street. That we, when we are born, don't like God. We have no care of God. See, when, when a person, when a human being is born, we are not born as blank slates. Now, we need to know that. No human being is born as a blank slate. According to, to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, says it this way. This should be on the screen for you. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile. Like when we are born, we have something instinctive in us that says, I will not submit to God. That is not going to happen. See, when, when we come out of the womb, here's what we're thinking. Instinctively, we're thinking this. I want to be God. I don't want to worship God. See, we, we are born hostile. Now, here's the thing. Every parent knows that, that human beings are not born with a blank, blank slate. All you need to know to know that is to be a parent. You don't teach your kids to lie, do you? They come by that quite naturally. You don't teach them to punch back when they get punched. They come about that really naturally. You don't teach them to lie to get their way. They, they, that's instinctively in them. If I want something, I will do whatever it takes to get what I want. You don't have to teach them to be instinctively rude when, when something's in front of them and they want what they want. You don't have to teach them to demand, give me some food. You don't have to teach them to cry at 3 a.m. in the morning when they're born for you to come in and give them some milk. You don't have to teach them any of those things. They come by that naturally. See, we have this inborn instinctive hostility to God, this indifference to God, this apathy toward God. God as creator and God demands our everything and deserves it. And we have this inbuilt instinctive hostility toward him. So that hostility goes to us toward God. But here's the, the even worse news. It goes from God to us. That when a human being is born, listen to this. God has a problem with them. When you were born, God had a problem with you. When I was born, God had a problem with me. Because of our sin, we have fired the first shot at God. We threw the first punch because of our sin and God's righteousness. We have a problem. God is angry at our sin. See, the storyline of the Bible, you just read the first three chapters of the Bible, and this is what you get. God is good, he is righteous, he is holy. Three chapters in, we sin against him, and at the end of that chapter, God kicks us out of his presence. God has a problem with us. Now, some of the, the language in the Bible that is some of just the starkest language to describe this is found in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to put this up on the screen for you and let you read this. To describe the fact that God really does have a problem with humanity. But listen to how it says it in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, our sin has so distorted our desires that we instinctively run away from God. And once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, that's, that's the entirety of humanity, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out, not the desires of God, but our desires. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And he, listen to this last phrase. 
This should send literally just a chill down your spine. And we were, this is all of us. When, when we're born, this is humanity's condition. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And now see that, that last phrase. By nature, this is what we are, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is all of us grouped together. This is what the Bible is saying we are. When we are born, it's not just we have hostility toward God. It's God has hostility toward us, that God really does have a problem with us to the degree that if something isn't done, there will be a moment in our life when we collide with and are crushed by the wrath of God. See, so this is what the Bible is saying, that there will be a moment when, when we collide with and are absolutely undone by the wrath of God. See, the storyline in the Bible is we have sinned against God. God is righteous and holy. And because God is righteous and holy, that sin has put us now in the crosshairs of his wrath. That that day is coming for every human being. This is the sort of hostility. This is the lack of peace. This is the sort of animosity that has crept into our relationship with God. So now here's the question. If that is our greatest problem, if our greatest problem is we have a problem with God and God has a problem with us, if our greatest problem is spiritual alienation, if our greatest problem is there is going to be a day where we are undone by the wrath of God, if that's our greatest problem, spiritual alienation, here's what that means for us. Our greatest need is reconciliation. It means our greatest need is to find a way back to God. Our greatest need is for there to be peace reinserted into the hostility. Our greatest need is for these two enemies, us and God, to be reconciled as friends and family. That is our greatest need. And the storyline of the Bible starts with, you have sinned against God, God is righteous, God is holy, therefore there is animosity, therefore there is spiritual alienation. And then it leads to this big question in the Bible. How in the world is peace ever going to be regained? How will there ever be peace where there's now animosity? How will these enemies ever be made friends? And Peter is showing us the how. How is that going to happen? How, how are these people who don't like God and God who doesn't like them, how are they going to be brought together? Peter answers the question for us. Look, look at verse 18 again. For Christ suffered once for sin. That we are stuck in the mess of our sin. Our sin that brings us the condemnation, the wrath, the judgment of God. Our sin that is offensive to God. Our sin that has brought animosity into the relationship. God has done something in the midst of our sin. He has responded to us not out of, of, of wrath and hatred. He has responded out of mercy and grace by sending his son Jesus to meet us right in the mess of our sin. For Christ also suffered once for sin. And then it says this. These, look at these five words. The righteous for the unrighteous. That is a great five-word summary of the gospel. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, now, the good news of Jesus, it is such good news that William Tyndale, the old Bible translator, said it will literally make a man's heart glad and it will make him sing and shout and leap for joy. It is that good. It is that wonderful for you and for me. It's that great. But before that good news ever satisfies us, it sobers us. See, before it ever satisfies us, it throws a, a big bucket of cold water over our head and sobers us to the reality of just how dark and deep sin is in every one of us. See, when it's talking about the unrighteous, it's talking about you and it's talking about me. We, we are the unrighteous. See, the, the Bible has a way of leveling humanity, of putting us all in the same category. See, if we're not careful, when we read the Bible, we're going to read it like this. There's good people in the Bible, and there's bad people in the Bible. And that's not how we should read the Bible. We should read the Bible like this. There's one good person. His name is Jesus. The rest of us are in the unrighteous category. That's how we're to read the Bible. There's one good guy in the Bible. His name is Jesus. The rest of us have sin that goes so deep and so dark in us. This is the storyline of the Bible, that we are the unrighteous. See, in, in a real sense, before a person can ever get rescued, they've got to know that they're lost. Before a person is ever going to be attracted to the righteousness that Jesus offers, we have to know that we are unrighteous. We have to know that we're in the category that God looks at and says, you have nothing in and of yourself to stand before me. 
There is nothing in you that is presentable before me. You've got to know, Isaiah, uh, he says this, that, that even your best deeds are like filthy rags. Now that is a graphic picture of gross right there, right? And it's saying that even your best deeds, that's what they look like in front of me, God is saying. Even your best deeds are shot through with sin. See, we're all in the category of the unrighteous. And here's what that means for us, that we, in and of ourselves, can do nothing to solve the animosity between us and God. The hole is too deep. The hostility is insurmountable. We need God to do something for us. We need Jesus the righteous, right? Apart from Jesus the righteous, we are doomed. And here is what the Bible is going to go on to say, that Jesus the righteous stands in the place of us the unrighteous. See, this is the great news of the gospel. It's the news of this great exchange, that the God would meet us in the middle of our sin by sending his son Jesus to live perfectly for us. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the commands of God. Every time you disobeyed, Jesus obeyed on your behalf. He perfectly fulfilled the commands of God. And in the climatic moment of his life, he crawls up onto a cross where he pays the penalty for your sin. He takes what you deserved upon himself. See, this is the great exchange of the gospel. This is the good news of a great exchange. Jesus the righteous takes all of your unrighteousness upon himself. And Jesus the righteous looks at you and says, now I will give you all of my righteousness. When you come to me with the empty hands of faith, trusting me, throwing your life upon me, when you come with the empty hands of faith, you get what I deserve and I will gladly take what you deserve. See, the, the good news of the gospel is the news of that great exchange. It's the, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is gospel doctrine. And if you're in Christ, listen, this is your story. This is your story. You have sinned against God, and because God is perfectly righteous, God has a problem with you, and you have a problem with God. And in the mess of your sin, when you were stuck in your sin, God came after you with his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to cross enemy lines when you were still shooting at him, when you wanted nothing to do with him. He sent his son across enemy lines to live for you and to die for you. When you made no movement before, you know, toward him, when there was no inkling in you of a desire for him, he sends his son Jesus to do all of that for you so that when we come with the empty hands of faith, we can be reconciled to God. We can be brought back. When we come with the empty hands of faith, Romans 5.1 says it like this, we can actually have peace with God. The animosity moves. It, it gets crushed. The, the animosity disappears and we're reconciled, enemies are reconciled as both friends and family of God. This is gospel doctrine. Jesus, God's son, was treated like an enemy so that we, the actual enemies of God, could be treated like sons and daughters. We got everything Jesus deserved. Jesus got everything we deserved. This is gospel, this is the doctrine of reconciliation. There was hostility, but because of Jesus, now there is peace with God. He's the only way we can get it, but there is now peace with God. This is gospel doctrine. If you're in Christ, that is your story. Now the question becomes, what kind of a culture should that create in a church? What, what should that produce in a church? What should that do in a church? If, if 1 Peter 3.18 is the, is the doctrine, if it's gospel doctrine, what is gospel culture? That's where Matthew 5.9 comes in. Matthew 5.9 shows us the culture that flows out of the doctrine of reconciliation. Gospel doctrine is reconciliation. Now here comes the culture. Matthew 5.9. This will be on the screen for you. Here's the culture that adorns the doctrine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's read that again. This is the culture. Blessed are, you might underline these words, the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. See, the doctrine is God has literally moved heaven and earth to bring peace to the, to the ruptured relationship that we have with him. And now here comes the culture. 
The culture is those who have experienced that sort of reconciling work, the peace that God has brought into our relationship. Now we become little imitators of God our Father, who the Bible describes as the God of peace. We, we become these little imitators of, of God the Father as we become peacemakers. As peacemakers, we are giving the little foretaste of what heaven will be like one day. We're showing the world what the kingdom of God will be, peace, where relationships are put back together, where enemies are made friends, where they're brought back into the family. So this is, this is the culture of peacemaking that flows out of the doctrine of reconciliation. And can we all agree with this? Our world needs more peacemaking. Can we just agree with that at least? That our world, there has never been a moment in history where the world has looked at, at the church and said, you're just too good at peacemaking. There's never been too much peacemaking that's happened. There's never been a family that's looked at people in the family and said, you're just, we just can't stand all the peacemaking going on. There's never been that moment, there's never been a marriage that said this, I can't stand the fact that they're making peace. There's never been too much peacemaking, and we live in a world that desperately needs that. In, uh, in their book, The Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Durant begin that book with a chapter called History and War. And in that chapter, it starts with these words. War is one of the constants of history, and it's not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Now, what is that telling us? Simply put, it's telling us this. People like to fight. Humanity loves to fight. That's what it's showing us, that we are not peacemakers. We are war makers. We are peace breakers. This is, this is what we are by nature, that we like to fight. We live in a world that is tense, isn't it? That is angry, that's trigger happy. This is the world we live in. I, I was at Starbucks the other day sermon prepping. And I'm just thinking about this idea of peacemaking. So I just make the intentional like, decision, I'm going to listen to what's going on around me today. Now that's a scary thing in Starbucks right there, I'll tell you what. You never know what you're about to overhear. And so I, you know, I just start listening and here's the first conversation I overhear. It's a boss-employee sort of a relationship that's sitting at the table next to me, and they are going at it. The employee felt like the boss didn't give them what the boss said they would give. The boss didn't feel like the employee was doing what they said. I mean, it is war happening in Starbucks. It was crazy. They both leave slamming doors. I mean, it was, it was crazy. This is the world. It's tense. It's trigger-happy. I, I overheard that same day, I overheard this guy. He walks in talking on his phone really loudly. Can we just say, don't, don't do that in public? <laughs> just that simple. You just don't do that in public, right? So he walks in talking in such a way where everybody in the store can hear him. And this dude is upset. He is mad. He's got somebody from the phone company on the line. Some, it sounded like a lady. He had her on the line. And it sounded like, as the story went, that he had had his phone line disconnected. And it was going to cost him $40 to get the phone line reconnected. And he was hell-bent on getting $40 out of this conversation. I mean, one way or the other, he was getting, either they were going to give it to him or he was going to take it out of this lady. I mean, it was the, I mean, we, this is the world we live in. It's so tense, so easily offended. It's dog eat dog. It's, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get mine. This is the world. And into that world, this gospel doctrine has created a culture called the church of peacemakers, of people who will go the extra mile to make peace, people who will gladly absorb the last blow for the sake of peace, who will love in such a way where they don't punch back, who love in such a way where they'll absorb the $40 cost to take peace into the relationship, who will gladly love in that sort of a way. Now let me just run through Matthew 5, 9 and from a couple different angles here. Here's the first one. Let's just connect the dots on the importance of peacemaking. This is, this is the culture that should adorn our doctrine. Now listen to how important this sounds to Jesus. Listen to how he says it. I just want to connect the first half of the verse to the last half of the verse. The first half of the verse goes like this. Blessed are the peacemakers. The second half goes like this. 
for they will be called sons of God. Now, do you see that? He's not telling us here how to become sons of God. The rest of the Bible is clear on that. We become sons and daughters of God by putting our faith in Jesus, coming with the empty hands of faith, not bringing anything with us, knowing that the only thing we need is need, and we come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, and we are now sons and daughters of God. So he's not telling us how to become sons and daughters of God. He's just simply stating the fact that sons and daughters of God are peacemakers. Like peacemakers is synonymous with being a Christian. Now here's the other side of that. When we're not peacemakers, that means something. It, it, it has the, you know, there's the other end of the stick. If Christian equals peacemaker, if, if he's saying that peacemakers, here's what they are. They are sons and daughters of God. They are children of God. Here's the other thing that means. When we are not peacemakers, it means that we are not sons and daughters of God. See, it's not teaching justification through peacemaking. It's just simply saying, this is what, this is what sons and daughters of God do. This is what they are. This is how they operate. Sons and daughters of God are peacemakers. This is, this is who they are. And I love that first word, blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. You get the, the fortune of God. You get the, you get the smile of God on your life. Blessed are these people. I love how one author says it. He says, conflict is common. Peace is precious. Therefore, peacemakers are prized. And Jesus gave them the highest name possible. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, the highest name possible. This is how important peacemaking is to Jesus. Now, let's deal with the heart of peacemaking. What, what is peacemaking? What are some of the counterfeits of peacemaking? So I, I do this periodically, and I think this is just a healthy reminder for us. I want you to just take a moment to look around the room. Just get a few faces in, in your mind. Get, just look around. Just get, get a few in, in kind of your sight there. And I think it's very, very important for you to know. Don't those faces look really sweet? I mean, they look so kind, don't they? I mean, they look like the nicest people ever. But I think it's really important for all of us to know that we are going to do church life in a community of sinners. And those same people that look so nice right now, who look so great right now, are the same people who are going to sin against you in ways that are going to be unspeakably painful. Who are going to hurt you in ways that are going to be so deep. It's the same exact group of people. You should expect that. And by the way, we expect that of you. If you're here, and, and you know, I, I, sometimes I say it this way, that, that if you're in this room right now, and when you look at the faces across this room, if you have not been hurt or sinned against by the people in this room, it means one of two things. You don't know us well enough yet, or you haven't known us long enough yet. But it's coming for us all, because we're all doing life as sinners struggling against sin and toward Jesus together. So that's coming for all of us. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to that moment of we have either been sinned against or not sinned against, but we've just been hurt by them, in those moments, we have one of three ways that we can operate. Let me just kind of run down through these, these three ways. The first is what we might call peace faking. This comes from Sin, or Ken Sand. I think he does a great job in kind of articulating this. The first is peace faking. Now, okay, now I want you to look at me here because I, this is one of my concerns when we think about peacemaking that I have. I think there's a common misconception that goes like this. If I were to ask you, who in your life would you say, man, they are wonderful peacemakers? My hunch is that a lot of us would start listing people in our life who are just naturally really, really kind people. I mean, literally, they could not hurt a fly. I mean, when, when a fly's on the table and they've got the fly swatter, they really feel remorse in that moment, you know? <laughs> that my fear is we're going to start thinking about those people. Now, here is what is really important for us to see. Peacemaking is not less than being nice, but it is a whole lot more than being nice. Peacemaking is not a natural disposition. The only way we're ever going to get to peacemaking kind of land, the only way we're ever going to get there is from a changed heart, from a radically changed, you're never going to be a peacemaker by nature. Never, it's, that's not the way, we are wired, hardwired to fight. Not, not to make peace. So, so it's not a natural disposition. It's not less than being nice, but it's definitely much more than being nice. And so I, I, I want to say this. I think, I think we need to see this little dynamic here. That, that when it comes to like how we can fail one another in the body of Christ, 
I think we can all see very clearly that we can fail one another by being very judgmental and condemning in the way we operate. But here's what I don't think we see quite so clearly, that we can also fail one another by appeasing sin when we shouldn't. By being nice when what is called for is confrontation. We can also fail one another that way. And I felt this personally in really deep ways. I, I uh, had a friend years ago that, man, I just had a hunch that something was off. Something was wrong. I didn't know what. I couldn't exactly put my finger on it. But I could just see enough things on the surface to make me think that what I can't see, there's got to be something going on down there. And I said nothing. I didn't raise a concern. I didn't ask a question. I didn't do anything. And come to find out, there was a lot of things under the surface. He ended up running off with another lady that wasn't his wife. So I want you to see in that moment, this in me, that, that in, in that moment, that, that my failure was not a lack of love and a lack of grace for another human being. My failure was insecurity. My failure was cowardice. My failure was appeasing something when I should have said something. I mean, I th this literally has kept me up a lot of nights thinking about this because, man, when I think back about where this guy was, just the whole situation, I am pretty sure that God would have used a good, hard, straightforward conversation to avert the whole scenario. I mean, it just literally, I get, it keeps me up at night thinking about that. And I think we need to see that one of the ways that we fail our church family is by not saying things, by faking peace when there shouldn't be peace, when, when confrontation is needed, when, when we need to run to the tension and address a situation. We can fail people equally as much that way. So, so let, me, let me come back and kind of frame it like this. When you are sinned against or just hurt, so it's not sin, they just hurt you. They did something that wasn't, just landed on you wrong and it just upset you. And there's a difference between those two things, someone sinning against you and someone hurting you. But in either one of those scenarios, you've got options. And what peace faking is, is taking this option. It's saying, I'm going to run away from them, but I'm still going to make them pay. Oh, they're going to pay for this. They're not getting off the hook of this thing, but I'm not going to run to them. I'm going to run away from them. I'm going to give a facade of peace, but we all know this. They know they've wronged me. I know they wronged me, and if they want to get this thing right, they will crawl up on my doorstep, they will knock on my door, and they'll address it. It's that sort of a mindset. It's this, we run away, but we make them pay. We run away, but every time we think about them, we club them in our heart. We run away, but bitterness and resentment and anger and all of those things are growing and swelling and being nursed in us. See, there's a facade of peace on top of that, there's a facade of all of that, but we're just faking it. It's peace faking. Rather than running to them and loving them, we're running away from them and still making them pay. This is peace faking. It's appeasing sin. But there's also the other side of that stick. So one extreme is peace faking. The other side of that is peace breaking. Now this is a little easier. I mean, this is much more on the surface, much more obvious to see. Okay, so peace faking is we run away from them and we make them pay. We're still nursing all of the anger, all the bitterness, all the resentment. Peace breaking is we're going to run to them and they're going to pay. We're going to run to them. We're going to show up on their door and it's going to get Old Testament style really quick. Okay, this is, this is peace breaking. We're going to run to them and make them pay. Peace faking, we're going to retreat and make them pay. We're just going to kind of do the silent treatment, kind of distance ourselves, just not show up. We're going to run from them and make them pay. Peace breaking is we're going to run to them and make them pay. And can we all just see both of those are not, you know, that's not the gospel culture that should reflect the doctrine of reconciliation. That is not a culture of peacemaking. That's not what we're going after. And here's the thing. This is the dominant way people in our culture respond to conflict. We run from it and make them pay, or we run to it and we make them pay. It's the dominant way people deal with conflict and hurt. But there is a third way that the Bible calls us to, and it's the way of peacemaking. The way of peacemaking. See, the Bible does not call us to run away from people and make them pay to run to them and make them pay. The Bible calls us in the middle of conflict and hurt to aggressively run to these people and to love them and make peace with them. It calls us to be aggressive grace givers. 
to. This is what the Bible calls us to. It's what the Bible leads us to. This is what peacemaking means. It means that we will gladly love them in such a way where we will absorb the last blow, where we'll take the last punch. It means that we're loving people like that. See, when it comes to peacemaking, it pushes us into really difficult places really quickly. First of all, it pushes us down the road of forgiveness. It, it forces us to ask this question. Are we going to nurse this grudge or not? Are we going to nurse this anger or not? Are we going to hold on to this bitterness or are we going to forgive? It forces us down that road. And what peacemaking means is that we are going to be quick to forgive. What peacemakers mean is we're going to run to people and we are going to be aggressive in the way that we show grace. See, well, let me read this from a guy named Frederick Buechner. Uh, he's a guy that I've been reading quite a bit here lately. I mean, this guy knows a human soul like few people do. So the reason I love to, to read him. I'm reading him thinking, man, I wish I knew me like you seem to know you. It's unbelievable. Listen to what he says here about forgiveness. He says it this way. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. Bitterness, resentment, just holding on to that grudge and nursing it. It's the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last uh, toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Now that's what forgiveness or lack of forgiveness does to us. We become the people that we eat. That's what nursing, that sort of bitterness and resentment does. See, th think, about, think about the way it's, it, you, you, know, you begin to treat other people when you're nursing bitterness and resentment. See, what, what nursing bitterness does for all of us in the room, and you've felt this if you have nursed grudges, and that's all of us, it makes people one-dimensional in our mind. It totally flattens them down to being one-dimensional so that when we think about that person, the lens that we look at that person through is our bitterness or the grudge that we're holding. So I like how one pastor, he illustrated it this way. See, when they lied against you and it hurt you, all they are now to you, when you think about them, when you talk about them, when their name comes up, here's how you describe them. They're just a liar. That's what they are. But then when that same person looks at you and says, but, but haven't you lied? Like, haven't you stretched the truth and exaggerated, sometimes even at the harm of other people? Your response to that is, but, well, but that's complicated. I mean, there's like issues there. There's like, I was thinking about this. And thinking, but when you think about them, it's all one-dimensional. The only way you can see them through is your nursed bitterness. And so, and know this, when the Bible is talking about this idea of peacemaking, here is what makes it so hard, and this is why it requires a changed heart. It actually requires you to get over you. See, think about, think about um, peace faking and peace breaking. Both, although their actions look a lot different, one runs away from to make them pay, one runs to them to make them pay, the heart is exactly the same. They're both self-absorbed. The questions that they're asking all revolve around them. They hurt me. How is this going to make me feel? How am I going to respond? It's, it's, it's all, all the questions revolve around them. And what peacemaking requires is for you to get over you to asking the question, what would God want and how can I love this person who has hurt me? Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably the best preacher of the last century. Listen to him describe this. He says, perhaps I can best explain it like this. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now just sail on that for a second. That we're no longer thinking just about the effects that this sin or this hurt has on us. Now is, and listen to what he goes on to say. Now is this not the whole trouble with us by nature? That all we can think of is ourself. We look at everything as it affects us. He's saying this is the problem. What is the reaction upon me? What is this going to mean for me? And listen to what he says here. And the moment we think like that, there is of necessity war. Because somebody else or everybody else is doing the exact same thing. He's saying that everybody is thinking about what's in this for me. 
What's this going to mean for me? He's saying, this is why there is war, because we're all thinking like that. He says, that is the explanation of all the quarreling and discord. Everybody looks at it from the self-centered point of view. Is this fair to me? Am I having my rights and my dues? The first thing, therefore, we must say about the peacemaker is that he has an entirely new view of himself. Here's the new view. He has forgotten himself. See, to be a peacemaker, you need more than a few, like develop a few new skills and techniques to kind of change the relationship that you're in. To be a peacemaker, you actually need grace to get down to the bottom of your heart and to change your heart. To where you're no longer looking through the grid of you, but you're looking through the grid of what would God want and what would be a way to love this other person. That's peacemaking. Now let me just finish by saying this, the fruit of peacemaking. I just want to read this passage to you. Don't we want the fruit of this? Don't we want a culture at our church that responds to conflict in appropriate ways? Husbands respond in appropriate way to their wives. Wives respond in peacemaking to their husbands. Don't we want that when relationships rupture? Don't we want the fruit of peacemaking? Listen to what the fruit of peacemaking, peacemaking looks like. This is James 3.17. It's on the screen for you. It says, but, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Peaceable. The, the wisdom from above is a wisdom that makes peace with other people. It's a peacemaking wisdom. It's gentle. It's open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And does that describe you? Especially when conflict happens, does that describe you? Look at verse 18. Here's the harvest. Here's the fruit of peacemaking. And a harvest of righteousness. For those who are peaceable, for the peacemakers, for those that are gentle and kind when you're responding to conflict, and a harvest of righteousness. Now, would we not love to see a harvest of righteousness among our church family? And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's the fruit. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I want you to go ahead and bow, and I want you to pray with me. And I just want to give you a moment here to consider these things. Because the truth is we all want that culture. We all want a culture of peacemaking, where the doctrine of reconciliation is leading to a culture where peacemaking, running to people and aggressively loving them, is our cultural norm. But, but to do that, it requires you to absolutely die to you, to get over you. And so as you're just sitting here before God, I just want to give you a minute for the Holy Spirit to press any of the things that would be most helpful. And I think maybe as a place just to start in this is being a peacemaker starts with becoming a son or daughter of God. That's where, it's, that's where it begins. It, it, it begins by us running to Jesus with the empty hands of faith who has made a way of peace between us and God. It starts there with you responding to God in faith, knowing that you have sinned against God, that God has a problem with you, you have a problem with God, and your only hope for peace in that relationship, your only way to be brought back to God is with the empty hands of faith running to Jesus. If you haven't done that, this is where it begins. We've got to be sons and daughters of God. And now Jesus makes clear that sons and daughters of God pursue peacemaking. This is what we do. We, we give a foretaste of heaven in the way that we pursue peace. So, so let's just apply this in the room. The question is, who are you nursing grudges against? Who are you nursing anger and resentment and bitterness? See, and the, and the Bible is clear. You, you've got to forgive before you feel like forgiving or you will never forgive. See, for, forgiving before we feel like forgiving is what allows us, when we want to, to roll the tape of what they have done and how they have hurt us, when we want to, to rehash every wrong that we feel like they've committed against us, for, forgiveness before we feel like it is what stops the tape. 
It's what says, I'm not going to nurse it. I'm not going to replay it. And when we stop replaying the tapes, we stop nursing the grudge, it cuts off the oxygen to our self-pity and our self-righteousness and our self-centeredness. See, forgiveness, the Bible's clear that we've got to do that before we feel that. So so who who, who are you nursing grudges against, unforgiveness against? Let's just start with marriages. Your husband with your wife. Regardless of what the other person has done to you, God has called you to be an active pursuer of peace. To not run from them and make them pay, to not run to them and make them pay, but to run to them and aggressively give grace to them. And God is so concerned about that that in Matthew 5, he says, if you're going to bring a gift to the altar and and you want like this sacrifice, this moment to count in front of me, then before you bring your gift to the altar, you need to go like before you, before you bring the gift, you need to go and you need to reconcile with your brother. I can, and, and, you know, in Matthew 5, it's so interesting. It says, it's not even if, if, you know, your brother has wronged you, you go reconcile. It's if you think your brother has something against you, if you just think there's a possibility that there is animosity here, that you run to them and actively love them. You run to them and you give grace to them. That's how serious God is about these things. He says, before you come and give your gift, you need to go do that and then come and give your gift. So, so how about that in, in your marriage? How about that among your friends? Anyone that you're nursing grudges against? How, how about this in our church family? Anyone that you're nursing anger and resentment and bitterness? Like This is a God-given moment for you. To by God's grace, say to God, I'm forgiving. I'm no longer going to hold this against them. I'm going to absorb the last blow, and I'm going to pursue them in grace and in forgiveness and in love. I'm going to pursue them. Any, anyone in your life right now that needs that from you, any, anyone right now that God is saying, here's, here's your call, you be an active peacemaker right now. And listen, don't don't confuse peacemaking with peace achieving. At the end of the day, you can't control them. You don't know how they're going to respond. But God has given you this call to be a peacemaker and to trust God with where the chips fall. So Father, I pray right now in this room that you would do some serious work in every one of our hearts. God, I pray that you would not let us leave this room put together if we need to be broken by our lack of forgiveness and lack of grace with other people, if we have kind of retreated from people making them pay nursing grudges, if we've run to them making them pay, God, that you would break us right now in this moment, that in an act of mercy, you would convict us, you would lay us low, you would break our hearts. And God, you would make us people who forgive, who pursue peacemaking. God, will you please do this in our church family? God, now I pray as we respond in song that this would be a moment for that to happen. God, if we've got people in the room that we would go to them. God, that we would be aggressive in the way that we show grace and forgiveness. So Father, in your grace, will you help us? In your good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.